Osiris production on the Osiris Podcast Network. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 9 of Dead to Me. Well, the ugly rumors are true. We've booked a suite at the Mars Hotel, we've already broken into the minibar, and are primed for a fun conversation about the Dead's 1974 classic, From the Mars Hotel, which might be my personal favorite of the Grateful Dead's official studio releases. The album came out on June 27, 1974, one month and four days after yours truly arrived. I don't know if that has anything to do with why it resonates with me, but I do know that 74 was a transformative time for the dead. From the Mars Hotel was the second release on Grateful Dead Records, and the last before the band took a break for about a year. At the time, nobody was sure if they'd ever get back together, but in retrospect, it's interesting that the Dead pioneered the idea of a major band going on hiatus. The reasons for the break were many, including the fact that they'd been on the road pretty much nonstop for a decade. Even though they were playing bigger venues and making more money, the band's us-against-the-world vibe was beginning to show signs of strain. And they literally had a lot of baggage. The Dead's fabled wall of sound was groundbreaking in terms of concert audio, but it was a beast to transport and set up. Actually, the Dead had two walls of sound and two separate road crews because there wasn't enough time to put the thing together for consecutive performances. So while the band was playing in one city, a portion of the team was already at the next venue setting up the system for the following night's gig. As roadie Steve Parrish said, We'd start at 8 a.m. and it would take two hours just to get the equipment on stage. By noon, we'd have the speakers stacked and we'd take a half hour for lunch. Then we'd wire it and get the amps running by 4 p.m. for the sound check. The show would start around 8 p.m. and in those days, the band would play until 1 a.m. We left the hall around 4 a.m. We'd travel all night and start again. Maybe that's why they started to get into cocaine. And not just the crew, the band too. Well, with the exception of Phil Lesh, who said, Cocaine makes me evil and makes me hate music, so I can't use it. It's just impossible. Phil did still enjoy taking acid, though, especially when making weird sounds with his friend Ned Lagan during the infamous Sea Stones performances in between Dead Sets that year. The entire Sea Stones concept, including the Ned Lagan album with Phil and the live collaborations, sometimes gets dismissed as an amusing or confounding afterthought. But in reality, Seastones represents the Dead's abiding interest in experimental music, even as they became more of a song-oriented band. They certainly invested in Seastones to a huge degree. Proceeds from the February 1974 Winterland shows went two places, a $19,000 down payment on a house for Keith and Donna, and... $25,000 
$27,500 for the computer Ned Lagan used to program Sea Stones. It seems like at this point in their career, the dead weren't just burning the candle at both ends, they were taking a flamethrower to it. Still, the band was in top musical form when they hit CBS Studios in San Francisco in the spring of 1974. The dead we hear on From the Mars Hotel is confident and inspired, with a mature sense of how to get their sound across on tape. Steve Brown, an early deadhead who ended up working for the band, recalled Garcia's vision for the recording. He said, Jerry would often use visual identification with the sounds he was trying to describe and they were an interesting insight into how he saw music. Sometimes he would actually draw it. He would have a celeste with these lines going out to these sparks and stars. He wanted it to burst. That's like a carousel sound. That should sound like it's a cold place on Saturn. Listening to the record, those imagistic aspects really do shine through, especially on tracks like China Doll and Scarlet Begonias, and we'll talk about those cuts in detail more in just a minute. But before we get started, I wanted to remind our listeners about the Skull and Roses Festival coming up on April 2 through 5 in lovely Ventura County, California. You probably heard me talking about it with Dan Horn of Circles Around the Sun and Grateful Shred in the last episode. Both of those bands are playing this year's Skull and Roses, but there's plenty of other awesome acts on the bill too, including Billy and the Kids, O'Teal and Friends, Voodoo Dead, Melvin Seals and the Jerry Garcia Band, Grateful Grass with Keller Williams, Ghost Light, and a ton more. You can pick up your passes at skullandroses.com slash Osiris and check out the full schedule for all four days. Again, that's the Skull and Roses Festival on April 2 through 5 at Ventura County Fairgrounds in Ventura, California. Head to skullandroses.com slash Osiris to score your passes. All right, friends, I think it's time to put the Do Not Disturb sign on the door and get down with From the Mars Hotel. Eduardo, Kevin, let's do this. All right, my brothers, let's check into the Mars Hotel. I just love this record from front to back. I like the album cover by Elton Kelly and Stanley Mouse. I like the songs. I like the performances. I like the fact that it makes zero sense, and I have no idea why some of these songs even made it to the record over other tunes. So, in other words, it is a pure Grateful Dead experience. (laughs) Uh, You know, diving right in, this album kicks off with U.S. Blues, which I think is a really strong opening. It's a great song. I love the wink in the lyrics. It's just a classic dead boogie rocker. Uh, The version here might be a little bit anemic compared to some of the more lively versions that you hear in concert, but it's still a hoot. It's also, I think, one of the most recognizable Grateful Dead songs, I think, outside of Touch of Grey. Yeah, I could see that. If you play U.S. Blues, everybody's like... Grateful Dead. Yeah, it definitely has a lot of the musical tropes that the Looky Lose would associate with the band. And, you know, they would probably recognize it really quickly, like you said. But it's also a really cynical song. It's taking a real askance view of this whole America thing. Oh, yeah. Well, it's certainly plenty cynical, as you said, Casey. The the America that's personified here is like the same America that Burroughs would personify. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll drink your health, share your wealth, run your life, steal your wife. Yeah, America, the grim swindle. This is not a happy song for not happy times. And, um, you know, the irony of those lyrics was probably lost on a fair number of fans as the years went on. Maybe the scorn faded a 
little bit. Yeah, it's sort of like when you hear something like Born in the USA being used in certain political campaigns, you have to wonder, like, did you even listen to this thing? <laughs> right. The other side of that is the dead were actually really patriotic, and there's this sort of, like, charming hucksterism in U.S. blues that they seem almost admiring of in some strange way. They reference P.T. Barnum, but I'm thinking more along the lines of Celebrity Apprentice, if you know what I mean. <laughs> It illustrates the divide between the different types of Grateful Dead fans, what people came to the Grateful Dead for, and uh, and how they can't control it. And the fact they don't want to control it. And it manages to be just musically an American band playing Roadhouse Blues, yeah, yeah. which is why I think the song was such a go-to for them live. In the context of this record, it's awesome, too, because right out of the gate, you know this version of the band is now a well-oiled machine. They are firing on all pistons, and those pistons are probably firing on the cocaine. <laughs> Although the next song, China Doll... Would be the heroin uh, era. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely opium-flavored. <laughs> What's amazing to me about China Doll is much like Stella Blue from Wake of the Flood. This is a pretty realized version. Yeah. Uh, it's yeah. spooky as hell. It's gently psychedelic. And it's got one of the most gorgeous Garcia vocal performances on record. I love the chord changes. They're absolutely sublime. The instrumentation is beautiful. It seemed to me that like on the early records, when they try to do this type of Baroque pop, it sort of sounded forced or it could come across as clumsy. But here, everything fits together beautifully. A pistol shot at five o'clock. Bells of heaven ring Tell me what you've done it for No, I won't Tell you sophisticated stuff that isn't the party at the show it becomes very confusing <laughs> because you you want that good time and china doll is not a good time <laughs> no it's kind of queasy but if anyone ever doubted the dead's compositional acumen or studio sensibilities this is one of the songs i would point out to correct any misunderstanding yeah one thing that's been lacking in the discography to date is that you know this was a band that certainly experimented a ton live and you know that's not something the studio records really capture they capture experimentation but not in the service of a song they capture experimentation where that piece is the song right so what's become of the baby is, right. is just what it is so 
the way they've been experimenting is not really in the service of making songs better. And I mm-hmm. think what you hear a little bit on this record, um, you hear it on China Doll, you hear it on, on Broken Chain, is the band starting to take some musical chances that push them a little bit outside of the, you know, we're a working band with live instruments and more into these sort of prepared pianos and synthesizers. Yeah, and here for the first time, I think it really does reach some of those lofty heights of like a Brian Wilson where you're using the studio sure. as the instrument. But but it also has that San Francisco Renaissance haunted ballroom kind of Victorian fetish thing. Yeah. <laughs> That's probably why I love it. Uh, you mentioned Unbroken Chain, which is, you know, we should spend <laughs> some time on that one. Uh, this is the first of two Phil Lesh, Bobby Peterson <laughs> collaborations on Mars Hotel. Uh, you know, like a lot of Phil compositions, it unspools without ever really harmonically resolving. You know, in, in layman's terms, it just doesn't really ever go anywhere. And either that works for you or it doesn't. I happen to like the mellowness of the vocal. I think mm-hmm. this song thematically pairs well with Box of Rain from American Beauty. Yeah, I'm an unabashed, unbroken chain stan. You know, I think in contrast to U.S. Blues, which they played all the time. And it's not a song that I dislike, but the familiarity of yeah. it, it sort of dulls the excitement of the song for me a little bit. Whereas I don't think I'd listen to Unbroken Chain for a good two years or so wow. before we got to the salad and the chronology. And I think I was sort of saving it in part, but right, I just forgot right. how much I love this song, how perfect Keith is for the studio version of this. Oh yeah. Keith really just has some beautiful tickles on this. Yeah. One. <laughs> and you have Ned Lagan, right? For the Phil Lesh sort of erstwhile collaborator. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about Ned Lagan for a second. So in addition to his appearances on from the Mars hotel playing synthesizer and whatnot, he also would perform with the band live, both during the regular set and mm-hmm. during a in between sets performance with Phil Lesh for a project they had called sea stones, which was, <laughs> was also an album and this would drive the hippies crazy yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know look ned was an honest to god scientist right you know he, he he was like mit and like doing actual science kids <laughs> uh and and so his thing though was performing uh using computers yeah in the very early days and so bringing computers out on stage and, and making them make music uh this was very new to the world if you can imagine that at a point in history
Unbroken Chain, I, I unfortunately have to play the hater. Oh, shit. <laughs> the song, I, I can't get into it except for Ned Leg and stuff. And that saves it for me. <laughs> you just like the buzzing and the gurgling. I know. It, it's it's not the buzzing and the gurgling. It's just that it forces a different, a slightly different structure yeah. into what into what the dead would normally do. If this was just a Phil Lesh song left alone by itself, then I would skip it every time. I think my favorite part of Unbroken Chain is the guitar break. It yes. reminds me a lot of Blue Oyster Cult. And yeah. the lead guitarist for that band, Buck Dharma, is probably my biggest influence on the guitar. So it's actually kind of a trip in my late onset dead fandom to realize how much similarity there is between him and Garcia. And I do have it on personal authority that Buck was hugely influenced by Jerry. So I think some of the hmm. Garcia aspects in my own playing are actually received wisdom from Buck Dharma. It's just weird. What's the timeline of Blue Oyster Cult? Well, Blue Oyster Cult were around in the early 70s and they were definitely influenced by the birds and the Grateful Dead. And at one point, they sort of decided that this whole biker amphetamine proto-metal thing would sell a few more records, so they went in that direction. But they never really shed the dead thing entirely. And when I think of Unbroken Chain, that's what I think of musically. Yeah. It's, it's very much kind of a, you know, Blue Oyster Cult have that tendency to, to if you're familiar with their material, particularly like their first album, songs like She's As Beautiful As a foot right it's just fucking weird you know what i mean <laughs> it's melodic but you can't pin it down and i think unbroken chain has a lot of those qualities and, as well and you turned me on to that album and and it, you know i could see this on a, a slightly later blue oyster cult album right maybe just because right. it, it fits into uh the overall psychedelia and that, that's a point too about this album is that i think they were rethinking what psychedelia was uh, starting with China and all and, and continuing into Unbroken Chain. I would totally agree with that. And I'm with Ed. I think the rareness of Unbroken Chain actually preserves its specialness. To some yeah, extent. there are no official live versions of Unbroken Chain released, I don't think, other than from Fare Thee Well, which is yeah. really unfortunate. <laughs> it's pretty funny. You yeah. know, another one that's somewhat rare, it didn't start off rare, but then it got rare, uh, is Loose Lucy. And I, I love this song, especially live. Um, the Dead played it for a while, then they dropped it for a long time, but they picked it back up again towards the tail end of their run. You know, musically, it always seemed more of a Jerry Garcia band type track than a Grateful Dead track. Yeah. I also like that it's uh, just about as raunchy as the Dead get. <laughs> and it's the ghost of Pigpen, let's be clear. <laughs> yeah, like, that's right. Yeah, yeah. The ghost of Pigpen is on Loose Lucy. Yeah, it's Loose Lucy is... is probably um a little bit more of a stretch for me just because i don't i just don't get a lot out of it and and the the raunchiness of the lyrics like is just not in a direction that that i want it to go necessarily and so <laughs> yeah it's also kind of awkward to hear jerry take on a raunchy song in the dead yeah you know it's usually bobby's role right <laughs> he's coming up with one a little later in the program <laughs> uh you know you're right this song is kind of light but to me it's super fun i might like it when i encounter it on a live set more than i like it here but it certainly doesn't offend me um you know but what's to come is even more exciting and i think scarlet begonias which is the next track yeah another close to perfect take mm -hmm. and again you can tell the band this version of the band is very well oiled at this point so you know why not take a hiatus <laughs> <laughs> yeah we got it just where we want it <laughs>
reasons I love Scarlet Begonias again comes down to Robert Hunter. He wrote this song for his wife Maureen uh, before she was his wife, and she stayed his wife right up until the end. Uh, you know, the lyrics are so picturesque, you can really just understand where he's coming from. This foxy British lady sashaying down the street, taking the bard's breath away. And musically, it's incredibly well realized. This is one of those songs where you could tell that Jerry had a total vision for how the pieces should fit together. And I think the only thing that actually limits this version is that the runtime doesn't really support Jerry uh, taking off on the guitar. And, you know, as he said at the time, I've never recorded a solo that's worth a shit on a Grateful Dead record. <laughs> but, you know, what's yeah. here is very yeah. effective. It's just not like those later Scarlet Fires that you'll encounter in the wild. But I think that, you know, his vocal here is awesome. And even Donna sounds great caterwauling at the end. I mean, she would never be able to replicate that live, but you can see why she was there and why she had the opportunity to let it all loose sometimes. Have we determined that failure to replicate uh, from the stage was a choice? Or? <laughs> I'd like to think it wasn't on purpose. Look, I think some of it comes down to the situation with the onstage sound, and this is actually the reason behind the dead bringing the wall of sound together because it was supposed to solve a really different difficult problem back then which was that you would crank up the onstage vocal monitors and it would feed back like crazy so bear had this idea of having these microphones that would be out of phase with one another so you could put these massive speakers behind the artists and have the vocals be included in that massive projection of sound so maybe it mm. helped on some level but then you know you're always trying to compensate for cocaine intonation yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, at least it sounds good on the record. And everything about this track actually sounds fantastic. And I can't believe I'm actually saying that I love a Grateful Dead studio mix, but I love this mix. The next song, though, is my favorite on the record. And regular listeners of Dead to Me will know that I've been waiting quite a long time to talk about Pride of Cucamonga in depth. <laughs> uh, I could probably devote the entire episode to just this song, but I just love how ridiculous it is from the chord progression to Phil's vocal to the lyrics. Whoa, 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 I've had me some loving and I done yeah. some time. <laughs> <laughs> and the other one is when Phil says, I can smell it for miles around. It's something, man. It cracks yeah, me up. I'm a, I'm a fan too. Right? There are no Grateful Dead originals that that play quite like this one. The chords are strange. The groove is strange. The lyrics are strange. It's got that strange blues break. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then here's another thing. The fact that it features prominent pedal steel that Jerry Garcia doesn't even play. Right. <laughs> right. It's actually John McPhee, who was a, a Doobie brother. Yep. <laughs> you know, I like Pride of Cucamonga because somebody's got to like Pride of Cucamonga. I remember uh, when we were interviewing uh, Neil Casal, uh, you guys started talking about that. And both your eyes lit up. And you were just yeah. like, you're like yeah. holy shit, somebody else likes Pride of Cucamonga. <laughs> and so I think it is that, uh, that, yeah. that people who tap into a, a different side of the dead than, say, I do, they gravitate toward that song. I'm on the edge of an empty 
about Pride of Cucamonga is it comes across as goofy, but Bobby Peterson, the songwriter, was actually a pretty interesting guy who lived a pretty interesting life, and it was a hard life in some ways. Uh, the line, the northern sky, it stinks with greed, you could smell it for miles around, references the fires that he saw up in Oregon from clear cutting. So, you know, it's a deeper song than maybe it seems at first blush. Mm-hmm. But it still seems weird that it even ended up on a Grateful Dead studio record. We're pretty far into the season now, yeah. and, you know, we've marveled at the fact that so many classic Dead songs that ended up in their live repertoire that we would recognize as cornerstone never actually made it to proper dead studio albums and yet here is pride of cucamonga <laughs> you made it buddy <laughs> i think kevin may just dislike phil songs yeah that could be. i am the uh, head of that fan club <laughs> uh the next track though money money the dead were so proto woke that they dropped this from the set because they thought the lyrics were maybe a little too sexist. I mean, props to them for looking at your own work and deciding that maybe it's not appropriate. That's an insightfulness that I think everybody could benefit from having a little more of. And unusual for the time. Yeah, yeah. But at the same time, like, I don't see it any more like egregious as far as that goes than, say, Loose Lucy. One song is about fucking. One song is about just living... A life. Apparently one where the woman takes all your money. (laughs) For whatever reasons the dead had to be broke, and they had many of them. Yeah. Yeah. 
uh, women or significant others were not really drivers. No, this that. wasn't a realist take. <laughs> Cocaine, though. And then you and then you get to the end and you rhyme Adam's rib with women's lib, and that's just yeah. a, that's not a good look, guys. And that's why it's not in the set. The last song on this record, "Ship of Fools," that was in some sets and to some glorious versions. I really love the version here too. It just you know makes me weep. And and that's a song like a lot of the songs on here that make the case that the dead were actually making and crafting great albums. At this point, yeah, they're getting pretty close. I mean, I can't think of very many bands that have perfect albums from start to finish, and <laughs> the Grateful Dead don't. U.S. Blues, China Doll, I'll Give You Unbroken Chain, Scarlet Begonias, I'm Not Gonna Give You Cucamonga, but Ship of Fools. <laughs> that's that's But, but that's, it's, enough. That's, that's enough. Hold on, hold on. That's five yeah. out of eight songs yeah. that, are, that are fucking great. And with Wake of the Flood, I mean, it's to me, it's the yeah. entire album with the exception of Let Me Sing Your Blues Away. You know, Kevin, you and I have talked about this sort of in the context of modern records. Like, mm-hmm. a band will be lucky if they have one truly great song. I'm thinking of one band in particular that just uh, came to mind, the band Midlake. That yes. song, Roscoe, on yes. the on the Charles yes. Vin Occupanther. Did I say it right? Yes, you did. Album. I mean, uh, that yeah. song is just incredible. I could listen to it, like, every time I... I put it on i end up listening to it like five times but the rest of the album has never yeah. ever stuck for me and so you're totally right the fact that the dead you know have like four or five on a studio record especially when their studio records tend to get dismissed you know the conventional wisdom is mm-hmm. like why would you listen to a dead studio album uh, yeah. and yet you know there's these um not just great songs but like fairly incredible performances some of them even definitive I'm, I just need a moment to consider the song Roscoe because it really is like that song is perfect and is it, it is its own crescendo. You know, you put it on and it's just as good as you think it is. And the more you listen to it, you're like, it's even better. And then it yeah. keeps getting better. That is a motherfucker yeah. of a song. It is. Um, we've talked a little bit about how the dead were sort of like uh, self-mythologizing and kind of creating myths that then fed into uh, their own myth as a band um it's not until many years later i think when the shady grove record comes out the garcia grisman album Mm -hmm. and the song off to see once more to me that sort of completes the ship of fools like saga it's it's almost like jack arrow ship of fools and off to see once more can serve as like this great sort of sailor's uh song cycle um within deaddom and this is a song that's ultimately about someone who's complaining that you know, he feels as though he's thrown his life away in service of this ship of fools. Um, but there's an acceptance you have of the idea that like, well, you know, it's okay though to throw your life away on a ship of fools because, you know, maybe the foolish person is the one who thinks they're not on a ship of fools. And that'll do it for episode nine of Dead to Me. Find us online, deadtomepod.com, socials at deadtomepod. Dead to Me is a Chunky Glasses production on the Osiris Podcast Network. Recorded in Washington, D.C. with hosts Casey Ray and Eduardo Nunes. Executive producer Kevin Hill. See you next time.